Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to St. Mark, and we're reading in Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12, and you'll find this on page 849 in the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 12, and beginning our reading at verse 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. We have been going through Mark's gospel, and uh, recently in Mark chapter 12, we've been looking at a number of questions that have been posed to Jesus. You remember that some of those questions were posed trying to trap Jesus, uh, to get him into trouble. Uh, You remember that the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians were asking whether or not it was legitimate uh, to pay taxes uh, to Caesar. Caesar, uh, When those coins that were used to pay the tax uh, deified uh, the emperor, that he claimed the the title of God for himself, was it right then to pay taxes to someone uh, who was not only a pagan, but someone who was attributing worship to himself? Uh, And it was a trap for Jesus. But you remember how Jesus answered their question. Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. There were other questions, though, that were asked to Jesus in the temple. Uh, They asked him about the the afterlife. The Sadducees asked whether or not uh, what will be the the scenario in the afterlife. Uh, And the Sadducees were asking that not because they believed in a resurrection, but because, again, they were trying to challenge uh, Jesus' own belief and the prevailing belief of many that the Bible teaches there will be life after death. But there was another question that was asked to Jesus, and that was by a scribe, one man in particular, who came and asked Jesus, as an expert in the law, he said, what is the sum of the law of God? What is, what is primary? There are 600 Uh, more than 600 commandments that we have identified in the law. How do you bring it all together? And Jesus was able to say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He pulled these two things together, in which our world wants to pull these two apart. But Jesus pushes them together to explain how we are to live before the all-seeing and all-knowing God. And so all these questions were being posed to Jesus. And you remember we were saying that questions are good because questions allow us the opportunity to learn. Uh, They allow us to to press into issues and to think over things and to to sharpen our thinking on, on many issues. And this morning we want to turn to another question, but this time the tables are reversed. This time Jesus has a question for those in the temple. Uh, And he has a question by implication for us as well. 
It's a question about the Christ. And as Jesus pushes this question before us, it gives us an opportunity ourselves uh, to assess what is it that we believe about the Christ? And are we believing the right things about the Christ? And this morning we want to see that because the Christ is not only David's son, but David's Lord, we are to honor him as such. And we want to think about these verses in just two thoughts. We want to think about the expectation about the Christ. And then we want to see Jesus's explanation concerning the Christ. Well, first, there is the expectation uh, surrounding the Christ. The word Christ is not a last name. Uh, Oftentimes we say Jesus Christ. And it could be that we think that Christ may have been his last name, but it wasn't. The word Christ simply means anointed. And as you search the scriptures, you'll find that anointed is someone that was set apart for a particular work, a particular office. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, they were anointed literally with oil. That was to signify that they were being set apart and equipped by the Spirit to do the work of God. And so you find different people in the Old Covenant that were anointed. The prophets were anointed by God to carry out their work of declaring God's message. The kings were anointed with oil to be acquainted or to be equipped uh, to lead the people in righteousness. The priests were to be anointed with oil, the oil that flows down Aaron's head, down his beard and upon his collar and down his robes. That oil was representing that he was equipped with the spirit to now intercede and to represent the people before God as a priest. And so you see lots of people being anointed in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, the whole nation is described as the Lord's anointed ones. But when you search the Old Testament, it's not just many different anointed people that are set apart for a particular work. What you also find is is that there is this emerging development of the anointed one. That there will be one in particular that is set apart to do a unique work of God. That he will be unique in what he accomplishes because he will establish righteousness and justice in the land. He will bring peace and prosperity and God's blessing to a people who are under sin's domain. And so in the Old Testament, you see this growing anticipation about the Christ, the anointed one, or the Messiah. So it is important as we think about the Christ that we're not just talking about a name, but we're talking about Uh, an office, a work that was going to be assigned to one in particular who would do the work of God. And as we uh, uh, turn to this passage this morning, what happens in the Old Testament is, is that people begin to realize that God's work is assigned. It is, it is connected with God's chosen king. You remember, as we were going through the book of Samuel, the great promises that God made to David that after David's days had been fulfilled, the Lord would raise up uh, from uh, his offspring uh, uh, and from his own body, God would establish his kingdom. The offspring of David, the, the, the descendant of David, would have a kingdom that would be enduring. 
that, that promise was something that was picked up by the prophets. Isaiah said, in that day, the root of Jesse, uh, speaking Jesse as David's father. In that day, uh, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Or Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous branch, uh, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So the prophets spoke about one coming, a descendant of David, who would do the work of God, and he would establish justice in the land. He would establish God's blessing, and he would restore the people unto God. And so there was this growing excitement around a son of David. Or, as the scribes recognized, over the Christ. The two ideas merge together, that the one who is set apart for this great work is none other than a king, because only a king will bring that righteousness. That's what a king is for. He is to lead the people in establishing righteousness. And so it must be a coming king. It must be the one that comes from David's line. So the scribes rightly understood that there is one that is set apart, And it is one that comes from David's line, one whose kingdom will be enduring, uh, that there was a great excitement around. And while the scribes rightly understood the connection between the Christ or the Messiah and the son of David, there's also a lot of uh, confusion even in the first century because people were looking for a political deliverer from the Roman Empire. People were looking for someone who would free them from Rome's talons. And what they were thinking was, is just as David defeated the Philistines, so a son of David will come who will defeat the Romans. That just as David had victory over his enemies, so a king will come in our days who will have victory over our enemies. And so they started to think about their problem really in in political terms that what they wanted was a nationalistic king who would bring temporal deliverance from their problems. And so as they started thinking about the, what is the problem that we are facing, it started to shape the way that they thought about the solution. It started to shape the way that they thought of the Christ. Our problem is Rome. Our solution is a king who defeats Rome. And what they were doing is they were actually missing uh, the depth of their own problem. That their problem was not just around them in Rome. Their problem was not simply the Roman government. Their problem was much bigger than that. Uh, Their problem uh, stretched uh, down to their own being. So there, there is this expectation about Christ that there will come one who does the work of God, who brings prosperity and blessing, one who will override uh, the, the ruin or the rebellion that has characterized humanity. Uh, and it is attributed to a son of David. But as we've been going through Mark's gospel, you remember that there's been a growing consensus about who Jesus is. You remember when Jesus was going along the roadside and there was blind Bartimaeus, 
And how did Bartimaeus cry out to Jesus? He cried out calling Jesus son of David. He didn't just call him Jesus. He called him by the name of the one who is appointed to bring deliverance. That he is the anointed one. He is the one who is the promised king. Something that is very important. Jesus never rebukes him for doing that. Or you think of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey's colt. On a colt that had never been ridden. A symbol that was to publicly identify him as the promised king. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the people begin to shout out, Blessed is the one who comes uh, from the house of David. You see, they recognized what was happening as not only Jesus identifying himself as a king, they assigned it with the expectation about a son of David. And so the people themselves were identifying Jesus as the son of David. They were identifying him as the one who would do the unique work of God. So in one sense, there's a great deal of clarity at this point. Jesus is a a growing consensus of people are saying, this is the son of David. This is the king that we have been waiting for. This is the one that God said he would raise up to do a great work. And yet on the other hand, there is this growing confusion Because what is that great work? What is the great problem? And the people seem to show uh, as uh, a great distraction that their problem revolves around Rome. So the son of David will fix things. He will establish God's purpose. Uh, But at the same time, they seem to think the problem uh, uh, aligns with Rome uh, itself. But their greatest problem was not the Romans but it was their own sinful nature. Until they recognize that, they're not going to understand the Christ rightly. As long as they think that their problem is Rome, they're going to look at Christ in a fragmented way. They will keep thinking that the problem is just out there, their problem is around them, and that the Christ will solve the problem around them. But what Jesus is going to show them is is that our greatest problem is not just out there, but our greatest problem is actually the sin that resides within. We can be just like people in the first century. We can be quick to blame others uh, for the problems that we see. And we can look at the factors around us as the way in which we assess the problem that we see. And then we begin to look at Jesus in light of that assessment. We can uh, have understandings of Jesus that are fragmented. Uh, They are not uh, balanced. They're not full representations of Jesus. We may latch on to some aspect of Jesus' ministry. You think about that scribe that came up to Jesus and he said to him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. And we may latch on to that and say, Jesus' teaching is, uh, is important. Uh, If we just had Jesus' teaching established, if people just listened to the teaching, then then it would make all things well. That the problem is, is that people don't understand. And if they just understood, they would love one another, and then everything would be fixed. There would be no problem. But then we're beginning to act as though the problem is just one of understanding. We're acting as though the problem is just 
not hearing enough or not being taught how to live properly. But what we need to understand is, is that the problem goes deeper than just behavior. The problem goes beyond just a, a moral code, that our problem is one of our, our condition. The root problem uh, is, is that we live uh, as sinners before a holy God. So if we're going to rightly understand the whole idea of the Christ, then our understanding of the Christ has to take into consideration all of that the scriptures say. Otherwise, we're going to have a distorted view of the Christ, which is what happened in the first century. The Christ will come. But what is that Christ going to do? He's going to do the work of God. He's going to fix things. What is he going to fix exactly? Jesus here is trying to show them a fuller understanding of the Christ. In other words, there was something inadequate about what they had understood about the Christ. And we want to look at that uh, uh, in these verses. So there was the expectation. There was an expectation rooted in the Old Testament. There will be one who does God's work. That expectation was one that was growing, but it was also one that was marked with confusion because they didn't necessarily all agree as to what the problem was. Is our greatest problem around us or is the greatest problem that we have within? Was their greatest problem Rome or was their greatest problem their sinful condition before God? And here Jesus explains uh, the Christ to them. In verse 36, Jesus, uh, uh, verse 35, uh, Jesus raises the question, how can the scribes, that is the religious experts, how can the religious experts say that the Christ is the son of David? They're right to say that, but how can they say that? Is, are, they, are they missing something in just saying that? And here's Jesus's point. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. The first thing to see there is, is that Jesus is taking us back to the scriptures. He's quoting there from Psalm 110, which we read. But when Jesus does that, he appeals to the fact that David said this as a prophet, that he said this under the inspiration of the spirit. That when we think about the Psalms, we're not simply thinking about David's reflections. We're not simply thinking about one man's journey through this world. The Psalms are part of divine revelation. And what David wrote here was something that was directed by the Spirit of God hundreds of years before Jesus came. But as David is writing this, it is God's revelation for the, the people, for the nations really, to understand how to make sense of God's purposes. And so Jesus here says, how is it that David, King David, could say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. This psalm is the most quoted psalm, and perhaps even the most quoted passage in the New Testament. This is something that the early church was anchored on, their understanding of what this passage is all about because it is pregnant with meaning about the Christ. 
David, uh, Jesus here highlights that in this psalm, it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. In the original, you'll notice there, it's that there are two lords. And in the original, the first Lord is the special name of God. It is God's covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. It is a name that is used only and exclusively with the God of Israel. And so here in this psalm, it begins by identifying the God of Israel is speaking. And it says, the Lord said unto my Lord. The second Lord there is a word that in the original is the word Adonai. It is a word that is very often used with respect to God. But like our English word, Lord, in the historic sense, it can be used in different ways. It can be used not only to refer to deity, but it can also be referred referring to a master. And so when we look at this, what is clear is, is that David is identifying two lords. He is identifying the God of Israel is speaking unto someone that he calls my master. Even if you don't want to go so far as to saying God, at the very least, David says, the God of Israel says unto my master. Bare minimum is what he's saying. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for two reasons. One, David is king over Israel. David is God's vice regent over the earth. David is God's representative to rule the nations. David, in other words, is in the highest office of the land. No one is higher than David. Of all the creatures of the earth, David is king. He has been exalted in God's sight to reign over the people, to lead them in righteousness. And so one has to ask the question, how is it that the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, how is it that King David can speak of someone being greater than him? My master, before whom I bow, before whom I honor and I submit myself. But it's also significant in a, a second way. Because in, in the Hebrew mind, in the, in the Jewish way of thinking, a son is never greater than his father. A son is always less and under his father. You think of a family tree. You, you, you begin up and then you see the descendants that come underneath their ancestors. That's the same mindset for the Jew, that, that one's father is always greater than themselves. They honor their father and their mother. A son cannot be greater than their father. They always come under. But here in this psalm, King David says, The Lord said unto my Lord, the God of Israel said unto my master, unto my God, unto my Lord, unto my king, before whom I bow. That's a remarkable statement. And you can begin to see why it is the early church took this and looked at it and said, this is telling us something about who Jesus is. That the Lord spoke unto his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool we can begin to appreciate why it was quoted so often. So it was uh, uh, a, a passage that Jesus here is highlighting. 
But, uh, but as David speaks of a promised king here, he describes him not simply as a son of David, but as David's Lord. He is the one before David himself will bow. So even if you try and translate this out and you say, what it's saying here is the God of Israel said unto my master. You're still confessing at the end of the day, someone that is greater than David, someone that is greater than the greatest king of Israel's history, someone who David himself believes he must bow before. That is what is being communicated here. And it is highlighting to us something of the fullness of the Christ. In other words, Jesus is saying your view of the Christ is too small. You have a very small circle of understanding. But when you turn to Psalm 110, the Christ is actually much much greater than that. He is exalted over David. He is the one who sits at the right hand, equal with God himself. He has the authority of God himself as he reigns from the throne of God. That's the Christ that is described in the scriptures. This is no mere temporal blessing or temporal deliverance. The Christ will do an even greater work. He is one who will defeat uh, his enemies and he will conquer them in a way that uh, is even greater than David. Um, but no, notice if you turn back to that psalm, Psalm 110, everything that, that else is embedded in that psalm. Because it doesn't just say that he will be a king or that he will reign or that he will defeat all his enemies or that all the nations will come and pay tribute to him. But it also goes on to say that the Christ is a priest. In verse 4, it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know the kings come from the line of Judah. You know that the priests come from the line of Levi. There is a separation between these two. But here, it is identifying the Lord as not only king, but also as priest. He will intercede on behalf of his people. He will do the work of a priest in addition to doing the work of a king. He will reign and he will deliver his people, but he will also minister before God on behalf of his people. He will offer up sacrifice for their sins. He will be one who reconciles them with God. And now we begin to see the fullness of the Christ because he's not one who simply brings deliverance, but he's one who reconciles sinners with God. In a very short time, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he is going to be crucified. But Jesus in being crucified is actually doing the work of a priest. Once for all, at the end of the ages, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That was his work. And as Psalm 110 celebrates, his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. He continues to intercede on behalf of his people. His, the effect of his work is ongoing. So even though he died once, he continues that bond of reconciling sinners with their God. That's his work. The Christ will overcome sin and he will bring sinners and reconcile them with God. He will reign as king over the nations. His rule and his judgment will stretch far more than David's ever did. He will judge the nations over the wide earth. And then when you get to the end of that psalm, it speaks about how, uh, uh, if we go back to verse 7, 
Psalm 110 at verse 7, it says, He will drink by the brook by the way. He will lift up his head, and therefore he will lift up his head. It's kind of a cryptic way of ending the psalm, but it is an echo of what happens with Gideon. You remember how the Lord brought deliverance through the 300 with Gideon, those who went down by the river and who were uh, lifting up their head uh, to drink from the brook. It was those that the Lord used ultimately to bring deliverance. And here the Christ is the one who will accomplish God's salvation. God's deliverance is matched with his anointed one. So the scriptures speak of one who was anointed by God to bring righteousness. Over time, that was linked with the promises of David and that promise that his offspring would reign forever. Jesus explained that the Christ would not only be a son of David who would be victorious over his enemies, but that he would be David's Lord. And now we begin to look at all of this in light of the fact this is hundreds of years before Jesus comes. It asks us to consider, is our understanding of the Christ shaped by what is the popular conception and culture? Or is it actually rooted in what the scriptures are conveying? That he will accomplish God's work, which is establishing righteousness, which is offering sacrifice for sin which is being victorious in doing God's salvation and of being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You begin to see why the early church treasured this psalm so much. The reason why we are to hope in Jesus is because our problems go beyond the outward. It's because my problems are not just around me. It's because my problems are within me. Yes, there are things outside of me that I cannot fix, but there's also things within me that I cannot fix. And that's why I need a Christ. That's why I need the Lord's anointed to reconcile me with God and to make me uh, fitting uh, in his sight. God has not only uh, promised a savior, but he has provided it. When we recognize the problem of our sin is beyond our ability to remove, we can look to God to provide that king to break the power of sin and to reconcile us with God. Jesus is pressing his opponents to face the fact that our need and God's purposes are much bigger than any momentary deliverance. Our need is to be made right with God, and for that we need a priest, a priest to intercede for us. We need a king king who will fight for us. We need a prophet who will declare God's truth to us. And when you look at this psalm, no one else fulfills the characteristics of this psalm except Christ, except Jesus. He is a king who has not only been crucified, but who is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. He is the priest who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins. He is the prophet who declares to us the work of salvation. He declares to us the kingdom of God. And so in Christ, we see not only that this is desirable, but that this is true. That what God has promised has come to pass and that there is a savior from our sins.
Jesus humbled himself by laying down his life, but he has been raised to glory and been given a name above every other name. David said, he's my Lord. Meaning by that, David bends the knee. King David bends the knee to this Lord. The question is, is do we bend the knee ourselves? Do we understand who is the Christ? The Christ is the son of David, yes. Jesus says he's more than that. He's David's Lord. David bent the knee. Are you bending the knee? Do you see the need as something that you cannot fix, your sin? But do you realize that Christ's death and resurrection is the victory over sin and the way in which we can be reconciled with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about your word, that we would see how it is uh, unveiling to us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would inform and shape our faith, that we would see how it is rooted in history and how it anticipates even what Jesus would accomplish. But we pray, Lord, as well, that as we search our own selves and we see uh, the remnants and the effects of sin in our own life, we pray that we would see that what is conveyed here is not only desirable, but is true and worthy of our trust. So go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.